I'm Mark Lynch, director of the project on Middle East political science. Welcome to the Middle East political science podcast. On this week's episode, we take on two timely topics. First, we talk to Dawn Murphy at the National War College about her new book, China's Rise in the Global South, the Middle East, Africa, and Beijing's Alternative World Order. Then we turn to North Africa and we talk to Huda Mizudet about anti-Blackness, racial identity politics, and uh, President Khais Saeed of Tunisia. Thanks for listening to our program. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's book segment, we talk to Don Murphy at the National War College and a GW PhD, I'm happy to add, um, author of the new book, China's Rise in the Global South, the Middle East, Africa, and Beijing's Alternative World Order, just published by Stanford University Press. Uh, Don, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Mark. So this is really timely with the uh, Chinese uh, mediation of the Iranian-Saudi dispute, and uh, Washington is certainly consumed with questions of China's changing influence in the Middle East. So this is a great time to talk to you about this book. Tell us a little bit about it and um, what you think the major contributions are. So I should start out with a quick disclaimer that today, all the views that I express are my own, and they don't represent the National War College, Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. And the reason I pursued this book in the first place was to better understand China's rise in areas outside of Asia and outside of the Sino-American relationship. And that's really what motivated the project at the beginning. And so it really was trying to understand what are China's interests in these regions and, and what is its behavior. And ultimately, the findings of the book are that although China's not trying to alter the international distribution of territory in the Middle East, as its power grows, it increasingly is competing with the US, it's building spheres of influence, and it's challenging the international system in various ways by constructing an alternative international order to facilitate its interactions. And essentially, the book argues that China's not attempting to overthrow the current order, but if the order unravels, or if China's excluded in various ways, it's building up this foundation to facilitate its interactions in the economic and political and military spheres, et cetera. And so at a high level, one of the, the major findings of the book is that there is a difference in China's behavior between its economic and political behavior and its security behavior. So its economic and political behavior in general it's competing with the U.S. and that behavior often, but not always, diverges from the liberal international order. In contrast, in the security realm, China's behavior overall is cooperative and overall is converging with the liberal international order. And so the way the book approaches this is it looks at a lot of different foreign policy tools, including cooperation forums, special envoys, strategic partnerships, free trade agreements, special economic zones, UN peacekeeping, et cetera, many different foreign policy tools across functional areas. But to try to map those out and understand how those fall out in relation to competition as well as convergence or divergence with the liberal order. And ultimately the book argues that although my work looks at Middle East and Africa, these structures that China's building are very similar and being implemented in regions across the global South. And so the findings from the book regarding differences in functional area 
and um, differences in the way in which China approaches Middle East and Africa versus Asia, I think is really important in trying to understand China's behavior globally outside of its ter territorial perimeter. Now, one of the things that's really interesting in the book is, as you're laying it out, is you know the, the tracing the different ways that uh, China or Chinese leaders and intellectuals seem to understand uh, the Middle East and Africa kind of differently in terms of the nature of Chinese interests there and also their place within the American-led uh, international order. Yes, so I would say that they view the two regions quite differently in certain ways. So on one hand, the Middle East, Historically, they've seen the Middle East as an area of instability. They use the word chaos a lot. They have a lot of worries regarding interstate rivalries, right? And, and th this is something that obviously impacts their interests significantly because one of their interests is having resources coming in from the Middle East in the energy sphere, as well as access to significant markets for Chinese goods and services in the Middle East. And so they, they tend to view the Middle East as a region of instability. In contrast, Sub-Saharan Africa, they don't tend to emphasize that. You know, they see the, the security challenges in Sub-Saharan Africa tending to revolve around internal disputes, but that don't necessarily impact China's broader interests in the region. So that would be one difference. Another major difference just has to do with the level of economic development among the countries in these regions in general. So Sub-Saharan Africa, obviously, a number of the countries are um, in need of foreign aid and, and foreign assistance in various ways. So many of the projects that China pursues in Sub-Saharan Africa tend to be tied to concessional loans or other types of aid. Where in the Middle East, they don't tend to stress that as much, even in North Africa that arguably has lower levels of per capita, gross domestic product, et cetera. So that would be another difference in the characteristics of the region, which then plays out in how they approach the regions. Another and, major difference Well, and, and then they also see the Middle East as a kind of part of this uh, US-led order. Um, and yes. they seem to be okay with that, at least until recently. Yeah, so I would say an another major difference is they have historically seen the Middle East being part of a, a U.S. sphere of influence and not wanting to um, infringe upon that. And, and so part of what I argue is that their behavior in the Middle East and Africa is incredibly similar. When you look at the cooperation forums, you look at special envoys, you, you look across tools. But in sub-Saharan Africa, they've been much more willing to publicize what they're doing, to emphasize what they're doing in that region versus the Middle East. And I would say up until quite recently, but but as you know, over the last few years, they increasingly are willing to publicize um, those activities. But up until recently, I think they were very cautious in the Middle East um, broadly. Now, let's talk a little bit about the uh, the nature of Chinese interests and what they perceive uh, as really mattering to them in the Gulf. I mean, obviously, there's the oil and the energy. But as you point out, it's actually developed and gone quite quite a ways beyond that, including into the security realm. Absolutely. And so the way I think about it is almost a hierarchy that the, the top interests they have in both of these regions are access to resources and markets. And I brought this up earlier, but I do think it's, it's very important to highlight. They see both the Middle East and Africa as incredible opportunities in the longer term for their goods and services, for technological cooperation. You know, they really do see these regions in certain ways as the future of the global economy and wanting to be involved. 
So that's a big piece that drives their interests. Another is that they want support from the 53 countries in Africa that recognize the PRC, as well as the countries in the Middle East that recognize them. They want their support in the international system. So whether that's in the United Nations or the World Trade Organization, in the G20, in, in any kind of forum on the international stage, they see both from a number standpoint, but also shared interests that they perceive to have with these countries in these regions, they want that support. Another important interest in particular with the Middle East is they do not want to have support for Uyghurs in Xinjiang coming in from Middle Eastern countries. And increasingly they want relative silence from Muslim majority countries regarding their activities um, in Xinjiang. If they can get positive statements, that's great, but in general, they're seeking relative silence. Another interest they have um, that ties in with a very long historical um, behavior back to the Mao era is they see themselves as the leader of, I would say now the global South, that used to be the leader of the third world, the developing world, now the global South. but advocating for what they perceive to be developing country causes um, and countries in these regions, I think is also a, a very important driver of their behavior. And then there are a few others in that they are increasingly wanting to protect their citizens and businesses in these regions. So if you think back to 2011 with Libya, China had to evacuate out 35,000 citizens and, and that was very challenging for them. They've had similar scenarios in Yemen, in um, Syria, et cetera. Um, they are very worried about their citizens being targeted by terrorists and other types of violence. And if you think about you know, the incident in the last week, Republic of Congo, you had nine Chinese citizens that were killed related to a, a mining operation. So they, you know, in the last 10 years or so, they increasingly are concerned about that. And I would say that there are other major interests in this region, um, in both of these regions, is that before 2010, they tended to approach the Middle East and Africa, Asia, et cetera, in separate silos. They weren't wanting to have a lot of cross-regional issues other than Taiwan, which is a very long-standing desire for countries to switch recognition. But other than that, wanting to have silos. Increasingly though, they're wanting support from countries in the Middle East for their interests in other regions. So some examples of that would be for their claims in the South China Sea for their behavior in Hong Kong, for their, as I mentioned earlier, for their behavior in, in Xinjiang. Um, and also just more broadly, they see countries in these regions as standing by them in relation to non-intervention and non-interference. And so you see this, especially in the last few years, them really seeing these countries and the global South more broadly as, as ones that could support them in some of their claims closer to their own shores. In terms of international relations theory, you know, there's two different ways you could tell this story. There's a really simple realist one where it says, look, their power's expanding, their interests are expanding, and you would expect them to expand their, their influence to try and protect those interests. But your book goes farther than that, and you talk about this attempt to construct an alternative order. What do you mean by that? And what type of international order do you say do you see that Beijing is trying to construct? So when I talk about an alternative international order, 
There's a number of different components of this. One of the major ones I look at would be the cooperation forum. So I'll use that as an example quickly, um, because I think that's one of the best illustrations of this behavior. So cooperation forums in this region, the regions that I look at, you have the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation that was established in 2000. You have one that's called the China Arab States Cooperation Forum that's with the League of Arab States. And you also have the Shanghai Cooperation Organization that was established in 2001. And so I'll speak a bit about these in that the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation includes all of the countries in Africa on the continent, minus Eswatini that doesn't recognize PRC. The China Arab States Cooperation Forum has all of the League of Arab States and the SCO, um, Historically, it was China, Russia, as well as India and Pakistan, but it's been expanding. So now Iran is a member, Turkey is on the path towards membership, and the Gulf Cooperation Council countries are um, dialogue partners and increasingly are. Right? So all of these instruments are the multilateral mechanisms that China uses to coordinate its economic and political and security and foreign aid. And, and basically any way in which two countries can interact, they fall under the umbrella of these cooperation forums. And the norms underlying this, you know, one is a very strict interpretation of Westphalian sovereignty. Another major norm is South-South cooperation. And then finally, on the economic side, there's a very heavy level of state involvement in economic interactions. And so they, they've built up these forums over the last, you know, at this point, 20 plus years. And much of their interaction with these regions occurs through them. Another element of order that occurred after these were formed would be the Belt and Road Initiative, that these cooperation forums, together with all of the other foreign policy tools that China's utilizing in, in these regions, falls under Belt and Road. And obviously Belt and Road very much focuses on connectivity um, and facilitating you know, connectivity in, in various ways. There's a number of other elements of order, whether it be that they're pursuing free trade agreements or strategic partnerships, special economic zones, et cetera. But I think one important piece to keep in mind is some of these um, instruments are in tension with the liberal order, but some of them aren't. So the really heavy focus on Westphalian sovereignty um, tends to be at tension with some of the aspects of the liberal order. But pursuing a free trade agreement is very much in alignment with the liberal order. It's allowed under the WTO, et cetera. So this is why I try to position it that I think they're creating an order, but it's not necessarily to overthrow the current order. Right now it complements the order, but they've built out these very robust ways to interact with these regions in a multilateral fashion. Now, one, one thing which kind of underlies uh, the, the move towards these multi multilateral fora is, as you document, the uh, really quite remarkable growth of bilateral uh, strategic agreements that China has negotiated with most of the members, uh, mo most states in the Gulf and, and other parts of the region as well. How do those fit in? Yeah, so the strategic partners at this point in the Middle East, China has signed strategic partnerships with every single major country in the region, right? So Saudi and the UAE, Turkey and Israel, Egypt, et cetera. There, there's a long list. And in Sub-Saharan Africa, they've signed these agreements with most of the anchor countries and then a number of others, right? Um, I'd say the way this fits in is these are not alliances. They're not mutual defense treaties. They are an articulation that China wants to have a robust economic and political relationship with these countries. 
and that it's open to various levels of security cooperation, but it's not offering security guarantees. It's not playing that type of role. So I would say it's significant in the Middle East in that it's part of the way in which China approaches countries in the region to demonstrate what it perceives as its balanced approach. So one characteristic of China in the Middle East, as well as in Sub-Saharan Africa, is pretty much in the Middle East, it has strong relations with every country and attempts to be perceived as a balanced actor. And in Africa has positive relations for the most part at the state to state level with all 53 countries on the continent that um, that recognize it. So I think these strategic partnerships, it's a way to signal to a country that they're important, but it's also a way to signal to other countries in the region that it's not just one country that they're engaged with, that they can have a, a robust strategic partnership with Iran and Saudi at the same time, right? With Is Israel, they do not actually, I should have said that earlier, they do not have one um, with Israel, but they are able to have, you know, one with Turkey and one with Iraq, et cetera, without um, those conflicting with each other. Now, one of the things which is interesting then when you're talking about how this kind of overlay overlays with the existing US-led regional order is over a question like uh, Iran. And again, this is in the news these days, but it seems like they sh China shares an interest with the United States in making sure that oil keeps flowing and you don't have these major disruptions. Maybe maybe if the United States were interested in pursuing a war with Iran, that might put us in tension with China. But if we're not, then maybe not. I mean, how do you think this looks from Beijing's perspective at this point? Right. So I think there's a lot of shared interests between the, the U.S. and China in the Middle East. And as I said earlier, I kind of described some of those interests that overall China's wanting stability. It wants access to resources. It doesn't want interstate conflict. Right. And I think we can argue confidently that the U.S. also shares those interests. But I do think the way that they, they look at this particular situation and the agreement that was reached two weeks ago was that for decades at this point, they've been attempting to contribute to what they see as hot spots and to contribute to peace and stability in the international system and in this region in particular. So in my own work, you know, I look at, they set up a special envoy for the Middle East, which focused on the Middle East peace process and the, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, right? That goes all the way back to 2002, that they have an envoy. They've been attempting to bring parties together to discuss that issue for over 20 years. They established one for Africa, starting with Darfur and then expanding into deal issues with South Sudan and, and other issues on the continent. That started in 2007. In 2016, they established one for Syria to try to help contribute to the resolution of the Syrian civil war. And just last year, they established one for the Horn of Africa. So I think they, they see this bringing Saudi and Iran together is something that is kind of a natural activity that they would engage in together with their special envoys and peacekeeping operations they've been involved with and anti-piracy. Right? So I think they very much perceive it in that way. And I do think it's important to note when you look at the joint declaration between the three sides, China is not offering its own solutions. It's not offering, um, to the best of our knowledge, any sort of security guarantees, or it really sees itself as just a mediator and bringing these sides together. So I think at a high level, if ultimately you have less tension between Iran and Saudi, you have less kind of proxy disputes occurring in the region that are destabilizing. Um, I think that is in US interests because one of 
U.S.'s interests as well as China's interest is decreasing the level of violent extremist organizations, you know, and, and stability in the region more broadly. So I do think it could be an area for cooperation potentially. Now, one thing that's interesting is that, you know, for all of the growth in the economic and in kind of the political uh, Chinese presence, it has, doesn't seem to have been matched at this point with the military. We have the one port in Djibouti, and then, uh, as as you described quite pithily, um, the sale of low-quality weapons. Um, and But beyond that, we haven't yet seen that leap in a realist sense to kind of a real military challenge uh, to American presence or American primacy. Does that seem likely to continue? Is that, I mean, is that kind of how you see it? I do. I mean, at this point in Middle East and Africa, the regions that I examined so far, the um, PRC's military presence has been in United Nations peacekeeping operations, which are done in a very multilateral fashion. Mm -hmm. Anti-piracy that they've been engaged in uh, at the Gulf of Aden since 2008, also done multilaterally. Conventional arms sales that, that you mentioned, very low levels overall, except for the Iran-Iraq war back in the 80s, but overall very low levels. And then the base in Djibouti, which was established in 2017, that China's narrative associated with why it established that base was around the evacuation of Chinese citizens and being able to contribute to the protection of the sea lanes of communication and that they have growing economic interests in the region. But at that point, and, and still at this point, it was China's first and only overseas declared base. I mean, we could debate about South China Sea, there's base-like activity obviously occurring there. But in general, this was their first one. And I do think, you know, although there has been speculation regarding potential interests in basing, I think China's interests are still the same in that they have very strong economic and political interests, but their perception is that getting involved in security issues and picking sides and having a unilateral military presence could be seen as threatening by countries in the region. It could be seen as threatening by the U.S. and that it opens up China to being vulnerable, to being pulled into disputes between countries or even inside of countries that would increase the probability of its citizens or businesses being targeted in um, these regions or even back in China. So I think at this point, they are able to achieve their objectives in these economic and political ways without having a more robust security presence. And I really don't see much of a desire to build out a more unilateral security presence in the Middle East or Africa at this point. When you see things like the uh, uh, American uh, charges that China is like busting the sanctions in uh, against Iran, or the, the recent meeting between Xi and uh, Putin, um, some people might have a more kind of aggressive take on, uh, on, on Chinese intentions, like how aggressively they're trying to create this alternative international order. Um, how, how do you respond to that sort of reading of what's going on here as the international system and the regional system seem to be in quite rapid flux? Yeah. And so I do think, I think there are two separate issues. You know, one in relation to Iran and sanctions. I, I think this behavior, you've had ebbs and flows in the degree to which China was cooperating on various sanctions, whether that be, you know, UN-led sanctions or, or bilateral sanctions on Iran. China's longstanding stance on these issues is that it's against sanctions, right? And it was very critical of the U.S. for withdrawing from the Joint Comprehensive 
plan of action, right? And has made clear that it has strong interests in economic relations with Iran. At least my perception at this point is, in general, they have been abiding by the sanctions. I think we can talk about it on the margins. Mm -hmm. But in general, I think that they have, because they're concerned that if they don't, they're going to get caught up in section, secondary sanctions for their, you know, for their companies back in China. And so I think that that's one issue. The Putin-Xi dynamic and China-Russia relations, I think this is something that's evolving quickly. And I think for many analysts, um, our views maybe are changing over time. Because I know at the beginning, you know, last February, with the original joint statement that came out on February 4th last year before the invasion, I read that compared to the cooperation forums and compared to what I had seen up to that point in China's behavior, it was just a rearticulation for the most part of what the China-Russia relationship was. So I think it took a number of individuals by surprise because it was so robust. It was so, you know, articulated so clearly. But for the most part, other than expressing concerns regarding NATO, which was specific to that statement, other than that, I really just saw it as a statement of their broad partnership. Right. And then with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, my perception had been that China was very much trying to balance having a positive relationship with Russia um, and not wanting to sour relations with Russia, but not necessarily being comfortable with the behavior that Russia was engaged in in, in Ukraine regarding civilian casualties mm -hmm. and violation of sovereignty, because there are very deep tensions between China's call for sovereignty, non-intervention, and non-interference, and Russia's current behavior in Ukraine. Um, the, the fact that the PRC continues to double down on its relationship with um, Russia, I, I think it is showing a new dynamic, you know, and I don't know at this point, just to be frank, how much of this is a, a, a one-off and it's about Russia, right? and how much of it is a broader dynamic in, in how they want to approach the international order. But at this point, you know, over the last year, they've really been, I think, struggling to communicate to the global South that they still support sovereignty, that they still want, you know, to be a friend to Ukraine, you know, et cetera, while um, continuing to engage with Russia in the way that they are. So I think it's a, a rapidly developing situation. At this point. Well, given, given what I've seen um, in the Middle East and in Africa, the, across the global south, uh, there is a, kind of a an audience there for uh, positions that are less critical of Russia on this. And uh, so I wonder how that fits into Chinese calculations. I do think I think that's part of it from the standpoint of, I mean, definitely, you know, the, the Arab Gulf, a number of countries there, share China's views and they themselves have very robust, robust relations um, with Russia. And many countries in the global South have that type of stance or it's just not a vested interest on right. their part. Or part of what we've seen to date, when you see voting in the UN General Assembly or in these other bodies, often I think many countries in the global South are voting the way they would on any issue associated with violating sovereignty. Right. So I don't know how much of this is about Russia necessarily and how much of it is about them wanting to protect themselves from similar types of criticism or them wanting to be consistent on their stance regarding sovereignty. Um, but at least to this point, I do think that in the global south, China has tried to communicate that it is a different actor than Russia, that it is interested in multilateralism, that it doesn't want to have unilateral um 
military activity, that it doesn't want to be violating the sovereignty of other countries um, more broadly, which obviously is in tension with Taiwan, but that is a, a I think, a, a very different, but overall, China's stance regarding sovereignty, I think, has been quite consistent. And um, so, yeah, I think that the current behavior of Russia and China's reaction to it um, at this point has not received any sort of blowback in my perception from the global south in general. Um, and I don't necessarily see that it will going forward, but it is it is a, at tension. So this is really interesting, but I want to bring this back to the book. And, um, and uh, maybe for one last question that we can talk through is, this is very much a story, as the title of the book suggests, China's Rise. And, you know, and there is this kind of sense of this inexorable growth in China's economic and political presence. And we know that in Africa, there's been a backlash against this in, in some places, at least, and uh, kind of economic nationalism and fears about, uh, you know, the what, you know, what China's doing in, with its construction projects and the like. Less of that in the Middle East so far. But I mean, I guess one thing to reflect on is whether you see there's limits to how far China can go with this without triggering some kind of backlash, or if you see this as something that they're effectively constructing into some kind of robust infrastructure for an alternative order? So up to this point, I would say as China has received criticism, especially from countries in the global south and in sub-Saharan Africa in particular, um, and from the Middle East for, for that matter, I think China's actually been um, quite savvy in adapting its behavior. So if you think about even in the early 2010s, as they started to have more economic activities in, in Africa, and there was pushback regarding some of their business practices and the way in which local workers were being treated, they started to really promote um, corporate social responsibility among their state-owned enterprises and trying to address that. In the lead up to COVID, before COVID had occurred, you had more and more concerns expressed regarding the potential for debt issues and other sustainability associated with loans. So China started to restructure them and started to communicate that it wanted to have different types of loans and, and to think through those issues. And so I think um, in general, both because they want to be receptive to critiques and also because some of the flaws in their approach previously result in less than profitable endeavors that aren't in their interests. I do think they've been changing their behavior, shaping their behavior. I think they're much more open to critique from the global south and, and countries in that area to these types of behavior than they are to the US. So for example, if you've got Nigeria coming out, Nigerian officials coming out and, and expressing worries, they tend to actually attempt to address that. Where if the US had the same criticism, I think China is more careful um, and sees that often as being hypocritical or, or being part of great power competition. But at this point, my read is that whether it's Belt and Road or the cooperation forums or their aid programs, but again, this also is an evolving situation. You know, given interest rates rising globally and the levels of debt that many countries have, there is an ongoing debate right now regarding China's responsibility for forgiving loans, et cetera. And so I think it's still a work in progress. But to this point, they've been quite responsive and I think changed their behavior so that local countries are more comfortable with their actions. And then I guess to follow up on that, in terms of a growing political role in the region, something like this, uh, the mediation of the Iranian-Saudi uh, uh, relationship, 
is that something which might increase expectations uh, upon them in terms of uh, solving problems, getting involved, intervening? Or do you see this more as, you know, kind of continuity with what they've been doing before? I see it as continuity, but I also see it as an example that increasingly they're willing to do these high visibility endeavors um, that a lot of their messaging now is also to the West, not just to the countries involved in the dispute. And so I, I would expect that we would see more of this in alignment with the special envoys. And, and I'm very curious to see, given China's balanced approach to the region and the fact that at least up to this point, they've very much valued their relations with Israel as well as other countries in the region. I'm curious to see what type of outreach they do to demonstrate that this is not a shift to the Arab Gulf. It's not a shift towards having, you know, more of a Saudi Iranian focus. So how they address Egypt, how they address Israel and Turkey, et cetera, in the wake of this, I think will be an interesting development. But I would expect them more and more to try to contribute to peace and stability by acting as a party that can bring others together, but not necessarily offering their own solutions. Well, great. We've been speaking to Dawn Murphy about her brand new book, China's Rise in the Global South. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and we're now joined by Huda Mzudet of the University of Toronto, a former journalist, a researcher, and uh, and someone who's been doing a lot of work on uh, issues related to blackness and racial politics in Tunisia. And uh, so, Huda, let's talk a little bit about uh, Kais Saeed and this recent escalation of anti-black and anti-migrant, um, uh, you know, kind of rhetoric. Um, You've been working on this for a long time. Tell us a little bit about where this comes from and uh, kind of the, the the context of racial politics within Tunisia. Well, this what what uh, side statements actually actually they were, were I consider as the tip of the iceberg of a long um, um, uh, a long topic that has been uh, um, uh, lurking beneath the, this veneer of Tunisian. Uh, uh, politics, especially when it comes to race, race in Tunisia is is a big taboo, and because of the way Tunisian state was built uh, around this um, uh, myth or this uh, ideal picture of uh, homogeneous society that is free of any sectarian division that blights you know the region, including Tunisia's neighbors. So, so um, her, her statement were definitely. Uh, a big shock for a lot of people, probably less of a shock for Black Tunisian Sub-Saharan African migrants because mm-hmm. of the of the uh, soft uh, racism that they have always suffered. I mean, ever since Tunisian independence. I mean, if not, I mean, it's it, it all goes back to the to the history of slavery uh, in Tunisia and uh, post-slavery Tunisia unfortunately failed in 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 including Black Tunisians and Bourguiba and Ben Ali's Tunisia also more or less were not very successful in highlighting, you know, uh, black Tunisians, you know, as part and parcel of Tunisian society. Probably sub-Saharan African migrants were slightly better off under Bourguiba and Ben Ali because we have to say that Bourguiba, um, uh, for all his faults, you know, uh, he was uh, one of the founders of the organization of the African Union. So he was a pragmatic leader. So he, uh, Africa, you know, held specific importance to him, uh, to, to him as as someone who 
was um, someone who was a pragmatist, you know, having mm-hmm. you know good relationship with 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 uh, with the Western powers, but also with the continent itself, uh, not into the uh, quarrels that with with Arab nationalists. I mean, at the time, so it it's it, this kind of uh, uh, this kind of uh, uh, atmosphere in which Tunisians, you know, were uh, lived, where they never questioned, you know, their their this their Tunisianness and this and this concept of Tunisianness, you know, Tunisian identity, and now it. It, mm-hmm. it 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 developed into Tunisian nationalism and under Saeed's you know a populist rhetoric is something that has never been unfortunately studied and even uh, uh, analyzed because of the way that Tunisia has always elevated itself into this um, uh, almost perfect society that uh, that where uh, where 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 uh, Democratic ideals of uh, the 2011 revolution uh, made it, you know, let's say the the subject of you know admiration of jealousy of of not only um, uh, pe- I mean uh, people in the region but also uh, in Western world. So uh, so the whole the, the, this whole this whole um, uh, this whole rhetoric about um, that side has adopted about anti, uh, that is anti-black and anti-immigration. Is uh, is a, is a, is a, is a result, unfortunately, of his failure as a populist leader in um, in um, addressing you know serious economic issues, and so the only uh, scapegoat for for you know to to blame for that were Sub-Saharan African migrants. But at the same time, there because of this whole um, um, the the decade of um, of uh, of uh, very you know a chaotic democratic transition mm-hmm. which is very natural in all democracies and you know, not to have you know a smooth and peaceful transition from dictatorship into democracy has produced you know um great achievements including the 2018 uh, uh, law 50 that criminalizes criminalizes racial discrimination uh the, the first in, of, of its kind in the in the in the men region but at the same time in the same year 2018 we had the uh, the um, the establishment of the Tunisian Nationalist Party, the one that whose mission was to fight Law Fifty, which this which it is described as a Damocles sword, hmm. uh, you know, on 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 Tunisians because of the denial of racism uh, that is has been plight in Tunisia for a long time. So having in the, in, in in 2018 for me was a year where where uh, where we have great achievements at the same time. There were there were these uh, these 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 um skeleton in the closets that were were not aware of the uh, the emergence of a populist um, xenophobic discourse from the Tunisian Nationalist Party, from which actually Said you know has taken uh, inspiration from when it comes to the Great Replacement Theory, which is very popular unfortunately in France with Eric Zemmour, who is the leader of French French far right leader. So. That's basically how things, you know, uh, yeah. developed. Can we talk a little bit about the uh, the emergence of activism around the issue of Black Tunisians that ends up uh, resulting in that 2018 law? Um, how did this become an issue in public discourse? And tell us a little bit about the politics there. So but Black Tunisians have always been uh, uh, um, invisible from the public space. Unlike other, let's say, Black Arabs, whether Black Libyans or Black Algerians or even 
uh, even black Egyptians, because of this notion of uh, Tunisianness that you know totally erased any ethnic or racial uh, differences. So 2011 was a revolution for black Tunisians and it was like a, uh, an awakening and rebirth for them. So finally, democracy gives them, you know, this, um, uh, this opportunity to speak out against, you know, uh, the 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 the, uh, the the um uh, the the fifty year of historical you know injustices under the regime of Ben Ali. So in two thousand eleven, Black Tunisian activists you know mostly made up by women because this is something extremely important because it shows you know how Black women have played a role in 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 highlighting these injustices, especially uh, uh, racial discrimination, but also. Uh, uh, in, uh, uh, also, uh, um, uh, uh, sexist or um, uh, uh, or sexual harassment against black women. This is something also that is important when it comes, you know, to to uh, to activism because it in intersects, you know, with the with the Tunisian women's, you know, fight for equality um, uh, against harassment. So, 2011, there was the small, let's say, nucleus of. Uh, black Tunisian activists that included myself, but also other activists, including Sadia Musbeh, for example, who's the president of Amnemti, the first Black Tunisian um, uh, human uh, 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 rights organization, but also um, uh, fighting for for Sub-Saharan African migrants' uh, rights, and then other activists, including Maha Abdel Hamid, and so on and so forth. And so, and Afif Altifa, I shouldn't, uh, you know, forget about her, you know, as, a, as an academic in a certain mm -hmm. university on the issues of race uh, in North Africa. So. So, so this small nucleus, you know, was 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 uh, was um, was created to start, you know, something out of from scratch, you know, because first of all, because there was a big wall that Black Tunisians were fighting, you know, and they were uh, like uh, that they were uh, they find themselves, you know, um, unable, you know, to to uh, uh, to you know to to face that's of denial, and I always say that the problem in Tunisia is not racism itself. But it's the denial of racism that kills. Denial mm. of racism has was behind the 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 uh, uh, the, uh, the attack on Sub-Saharan African migrants, unfortunately, because when the, and and when you deny something, you simply you know bury it under the ground. And because of how traumatized maybe Tunisians you know are uh, have have always been uh, regarding you know um, uh, the, the Tunisian dictatorship, so. That black Tunisian activism was was seen as 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 a already as a foreign plot. I still remember 2011. Uh, we have been accused of being uh, of being paid maybe by, by Israel, you know, to set up a black republic in the south, and mm -hmm. also because of the obsession about racism that has to be American-like style or South African apartheid-like style. When uh, we know that racism, you know. Is exist in all societies. We can't just, you know, <laughs> deny that. But just in the case of Tunisia, this thing doesn't exist. So it's very much like don't ask, don't tell type of, you know, uh, policy that has been imposed on Black Tunisians not not to engage in that discourse. So we found ourselves, you know, on our own, you know, fighting for something that we knew it was a, an adventure that could probably fail, you know, in, in the short term, not even in the long term. Right. Uh, but then later on, because, you know, of, of the dialogue and, you know, conversations with with the different, you know, um, uh, civil society activists, including politicians, we were able to gather, let's say, more allies from the non-Black uh, Tunisian weather elite, but also from other uh, civil society activists. And this is how 
so few blockchain organizations were made, including Adam, which uh, which I co-founded in 2012 with Mahab Hamid and other blockchain activists. Um, with Nemti, where, where Saadi, I mean, I wasn't part of Nemti, but I was following, you know, their activities in 2013. And it was right now is the only black Tunisian organization that, you know, has been doing a, a tremendous job when it comes not only for uh, in the lobbying uh, for the for, for law 50 that uh, for the criminalization of racial discrimination, but also in protecting our sub-Saharan African migrants against racial attacks. And you have to remember that 2016, there were three Congolese, you know, students who were stabbed, you know, by a non-black Tunisian, you know, in the middle of uh, of downtown Tunis. And uh, at the time, it was not considered as a as a as a hate attack or, or racially motivated attack because of of the lack of legislation, you know, that criminalizes this. But you know, I still remember from Saadia Musbah telling me uh, at the time in 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 December 2016 when she went to see those, you know. Uh, the, those uh, those victims of the stabbing by a Tunisian uh, young man uh, that you know that that the, the young man he said you know I wanted to 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 kill them because because they spoke Lingala they were from Cong the, from from the Congo and the the the, the, the one of the languages uh, in uh, spoken in Congo is Lingala so so and because he recognized them from from the, from 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 the language they were speaking. So at the time there was uh, there, there was a, a, a some kind of uh, um, hesitation on the part of you know Tunisian authorities whether to classify this as a racially motivated attack or just you know a normal let's say crime that happens uh, every day. So then there was a a a, a, a big a big uh, work you know from the first Black Tunisian MP who passed away, Jamila Debeshiksiksi, you know, the, in December twenty twenty two. Uh, her job was very instrumental, you know, as a as a black as a black uh, Tunisian MP in pushing for this legislation, you know, to you know to be passed. Because being a member of the uh, Nahda party, the largest, you know, the, 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 in in the Tunisian parliament at the time, also being a member of the Pan African Parliament. So so her work was very instrumental as well in this in this in this passage of the law. And this is how uh, this is how in uh, two thousand and eighteen the, the, under uh, Yusuf Shahid's uh, um, premiership, uh, Black Tunisian activists were able, you know, to finally mm -hmm. uh, found, let's say, um, a legitimacy in the political circle at the time. So the issues are clearly linked, but somewhat different uh, in terms of the discrimination faced by Black Tunisians versus the challenges faced by uh, sub-Saharan Af uh, African migrants uh, into uh, into the country. How do those link up in in the politics and in, in the racial politics of um, of these issues? I mean, they both are linked you know, in the fact, you know, that they that, that you know, Black Tunisians and sub-Saharan African migrants are phenotypically, you know, uh, blacks and so they are very visible you know in the public space while being invisible at the same time not being part of that say the political scene unlike for example in the US and this is something that uh, a lot of Tunisians you know they always uh, that they, they misunderstand about the US that it's a racist society because it this is how it it was built you know through whether unfortunately the slave system but also um, uh, how the history of this civil rights movement so the, the the issue of racism, uh, uh, anti-black racism in Tunisia against people who look uh, typically black is something that um, that is usually uh, looked at as a as as a, as a U.S. problem, not a Tunisian problem. So that uh, so 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 what what happens is that when 
when when when black Tunisians or Sub-Saharan African migrants are attacked, you know, there's no um no uh, there's no um uh no differentiation, you know, in in the way uh that, that they are perceived in Tunisian society because of the ignorance of in, in a lot of black Tunisians about the history of not only slavery but also about race um in the country because again of the the the, the Tunisian state makeup. Um, so um, I think um, uh, I think that you know um, the, 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 the 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 issue that is faced by uh, both categories of the most vulnerable in the Tunisian population is something that is at the stake of racial politics in Tunisia that has never had any resonance before 2011, and the fact of the denying of its existence and always linking it to a foreign agenda, most likely, usually the American agenda because of how um, how racial politics in the, in the US is part of politics when it's not part of politics in Tunisia because of the history of, den of, of denying not only racism, but also the, uh, the, the race as, 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 as a political construct mm -hmm. or as even social construct. So that makes things very hard, you know, for. For 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 black, for black Tunisians, but also Sub-Saharan African migrants, to defend themselves against uh, against these attacks, because at the end of the day, when they go to the police station, they will tell them, "Well, this is just a normal criminal um, act. You know, we're just gonna deal with it like anything." And, and general speaking, I have to say, unfortunately, you no. Know, before Law Fifty, uh, any attack against these categories was 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 never taken into account, um, uh, because of how uh, deeply uh, uh, ingrained systemic racism in Tunisian state has made it uh, so easy for them, you know, just to and to to minimize, you know, that uh, that um, uh, such uh, such an attack. I'm not sure if I I, I, I answered the question, but I think no, 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 no. That, makes, that, made, that makes perfect it, sense. But it's a real conundrum for Black Tunisians getting kind of caught in the crosshairs of this anti-migrant sentiment. Yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. Because you know, uh, even when after you know side statements, you know, the, the the my biggest fear at the time was for my family. Like you know, fortunately, most of my family they live in the south. You know, where uh, where where most Black Tunisians are are, are are located, and so there were almost no attacks whatsoever on Black Tunisians because you know they are recognizable mm -hmm. within a small you know tribalistic quote unquote you know community. But uh, but my my other fear was for my Black Tunisian friends in Tunis and even as Fox, but also for my Sub-Saharan African friends, you know, who have been living in Tunisia for many years, because I know that a lot of uh, non-Black Tunisians, they don't, they're not, they can't make the, the difference between who is a Tunisian who is not. And this is, unfortunately, you know, the whole state policy of making Black Tunisians invisible. And uh, so, so in, in such a way that, you know, uh, that black Tunisians, whenever they walk in the street, they are usually, they oftentimes uh, mistaken for being Sub-Saharan African migrants, and uh, and that's that's something that unfortunately, you know, has 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 always been uh, a, a big issue in how the identity of black Tunisians have 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 never been uh, elevated, uh, even after 2011, so that they feel that they are full citizens and. If and 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 if the uh, and if Saeed, you know, has taken this into account uh, before uttering, you know, his racist remarks, you know, nothing of that would have would have happened today. So, so, uh, so the the whole the onus is on 
on on not only on him but also on the whole system that that um that 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 through the violence of invisibility, black Tunisians were, were found themselves, you know, unfortunately at one, one time, uh, trying to find you know alliances outside, you know, uh, whether with other, let's say, uh, through through the, the transnational activism with the, with other communities. For example, in 2014, there was the um, uh, 2013 and 15, Tunisia hosted the World Social Forum, and there were. Um, uh, uh, there were Afro-Brazilians who came to Tunisia and also African-Americans, but also indigenous Canadians indig uh, mm -hmm. and indigenous people from different Latin American countries. And, the, and they found, you know, some kind of, you know, um, um, uh, alliance with them, but also their fight for, for, justice, inter for justice intersects with that of Black Tunisians. So having that in mind, um, it, it, it is telling about how racial politics in Tunisia has uh, has 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 not taken into account, you know, these the these the the these the, this big elephant in the room that is race, which 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 should have been, you know, on, on the table in you know, since 2011, but unfortunately that wasn't the case because of of the failure of different governments and the system itself, you know, in addressing that issue. So maybe last thing, let's talk about Kais Saeed himself and why he chose to unleash this particular campaign at this time and how it's played out within Tunisian politics and society. You know, who, who has embraced it? Who's opposed it? Um, you know, what, what is he doing with this um, this racist campaign? Well, Kais uh, Saeed is a populist leader who is no different from Bolsonaro in Brazil or He's probably closer to uh, Orban of, of of Hungary in criminalizing uh, migrants. I think he he typically uh, he typifies actually this 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 populist who, at any cost, he has to find a scapegoat for his failure. And so uh, I was speaking to a Hungarian journalist uh, the other day, and and he and he was shocked to see how many similarities are between Orban and Said in the fact that you know. Uh, of, of, uh, about um, his, for example, inflation of the figure of the figure of uh, sub-Saharan uh, African migrants in Tunisia from uh, twenty-one thousand, according to official statistics, to one million, who are these hordes of African migrants who are ready, you know, to invade Tunisia and replace, um, replace, uh, replace it uh, by uh, by uh, by uh, by black Africans. This whole conspiracy theory is part of of Syed's populist uh, discourse. That is uh, that what made him extremely popular with uh, with with his supporters, especially from the Tunisian Nationalist Party. Even though he is very smart in not embracing these people, because he 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 was successful because of his um, anti-system and anti-political party rhetoric. But at the same time, he's someone who, although he's not very proficient with social media, but uh, as a populist, he listens to the people, and the, his notion of the people are are the ones, the average Tunisians who are who are expressed, you know, themselves, you know, in in that such an unhinged way, including, you know, uh, having, you know, racist, you know, um, statement, which of, of course, you know, they will always deny because for a lot of non-black Tunisians, especially the the people that sides, you know, uh, 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 um, uh, uh, prides in 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 having uh, in in having his legitimacy legitimacy thanks to them. These people they uh, uh, they deny that anti-black racism exists in Tunisia because as long as there is no 
uh, no Tunisian policemen killing black Tunisians as they do in the U.S. So there is no racism there. So, so, uh, so, um, so this statement, you know, uh, the, I mean, this this rhetoric has been brewing at least since 2018 because it took advantage of freedom of expression. This is and this is where. Unfortunately, have social media playing a big role in the dissemination of um, of hate speech. You know what? How, what, what I mean, this is something not. This is not a deja, I mean, this is not a déjà vu because I've seen it. Whether in during elections of Donald Trump when he was he was um, criminalizing you know uh, Mexican migrants, you know for. For, uh, for 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 all the ills you know that American society you know is witnessing, but also in in in, in Eastern Europe, whether you know, with in Hungary or even Poland and France, you know, with Zemmour. And I think, uh, and I think what made things even worse, and this is something that I you know, I mean, I noted back in September twenty twenty two, when the far right um, uh, um, um, party, which I can't remember, of the Italian far right party of Giorgia Meloni for, for prime minister. I was I was extremely worried and scared that it will have terrible implications on Tunisia because given given uh, uh, Italy's neighborhood you know uh, I mean Italy's you know um, immediate neighbor is Tunisia that the question of irregular migration, fascism, quote unquote in some way, and racism, and populism they mm -hmm. all coalesce to to you know to produce something that is extremely uh horrifying you know in in the short term so so and and so it 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 proved to be um to be you know um uh that, i mean uh, the, the 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 election of meloni was 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 in some ways you know uh a premonition to what would happen later on in tunisia with Saeed, you know finally finding you know um a way to blame uh let's say his failure which he would never of course you know admit to uh, in addressing economic, you know, uh, issues, you know, blighting Tunisian economy, not only since, you know, uh, his uh, his coup in 2021, but also since 2011 because of the revolution. So, uh, so you you have a very good fertile ground there, you know, for for his for his uh, for his rhetoric, you know, to find in resonance. I have to say, you know, when he made the statements, and I, I've, I've uh, most of my friends, at least, you know, who, who live in their bubble of Mm -hmm. Of you know, usually very progressive. You know, we will always be you know uh, being accused of being more like woke. You know, uh, you know intellectuals. You know, living our bubble there. Um, we were very angry. We couldn't understand. You know, what would a leader, uh, what would take a leader? You know, to utter you know uh, such a rhetoric, and that leader he he happens to be from uh, from an African country. So that's what made things even worse enough you know, for 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 us to process that because this is something that. Usually you hear it from, let's say, white nationalists in Europe in particular, but also in, in North America as well. And so, um, so, 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 so his rhetoric found resonance with, with a lot of Tunisians. I don't want to say the majority, but, but a lot of them from, the, from, the, from, this, uh, from this notion of the people that he, he loves you know, to, to, you know, to, 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 to consider as his, his own supporters. Um, uh, whether those who who live, you know, especially in urban areas, usually, you know, uh, run down, you know, economically deprived areas, whether in, in Tunis or in Sfax, but also in other cities like Sousse. Um, and so uh, through social media, they were able, you know, to mobilize a lot of their supporters, unfortunately. And they were able, you know, just to, you know, to, to get their message across about the danger of, supposedly danger or threat of, uh, 
of, of the sub-Saharan African migrants, you know, change in Tunisian demographics. And, and that also is linked, you know, to, to the anti-immigration uh, rhetoric uh, under Georgia Maloney's, you know, government. Because for, for this is also not a new, I mean, a, a new issue, you know, when it comes, you know, the, the fight and illegal immigration from the, from the EU, because it has been going on since the 1990s that, you know, uh, most EU leaders at the time were trying to externalize, you know, their uh, their borders, you know, to North Africa, so that they would stop, you know, the stem of immigration. And they they had paid, you know, Gaddafi at the time, you know, to you know to to stem the immigration of Sub-Saharan African migrants. At the, at one time, he was very cooperative. At other time, he was not. Same thing with Ben Ali was part of this of this of this uh, of this process of you know becoming the Coast Guard of the European Union. And now with with Maloney openly having this anti-immigrant fascist, you know, ideology of not wanting these people into our shores because, you know, they represent a threat to the, 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 the European, you know, values and, you know, whatever, you know, that, that means for them, then uh, it's, it, it would be very easy for, for side, you know, just, you know, to, to, and his supporters, you know, to, to embrace this ideology because it's so, because of, again, of, of, of the, of the geographical location of Tunisia, which is, uh, which is which is probably not very comfortable one because it's neither African nor European. So it's in this kind of status of limbo where even non-Black Tunisians and including Black Tunisians as well, you know, they never identify with with the continent because again, Tunisia is the only uh, African country that doesn't have any borders with sub-Saharan African countries. So that that tells a lot about this disconnection from Africa. That even in his rhetoric, uh, Said would. Would 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 talk about Africans, meaning blacks and Tunisians. So this crisis of identity, unfortunately, as is at the heart of how racial politics in Tunisia had always um, uh, struggled. You know, to to uh, to uh, to um, uh, to uh, um, uh, struggled. You know, through, through, since you know, and since independence, and uh, and and more and more recently, you know, since uh, the Tunisian revolution and with sides, you know. Things have come to the surface as a moment. I have to say, maybe of reckoning for Tunisians today to look at this specific issue of race because it's the big elephant in the room that needs to be tackled now more than ever before. Because the repercussions of Syed's rhetoric, unfortunately, will be very catastrophic in the long run, especially with the African with, with the African continent. Because right now, Tunisia, sadly, is considered as a racist country, and it's a country that is very uh, dangerous for black people, which is something that, uh, which is which is at the antithesis of what Tunisia has always marketed itself as a very tolerant and open uh, society for for uh, for any from any for, for, from any for anyone. Well, thanks. This is really interesting context and background. Uh, we've been speaking with uh, with Huda Musyadet about uh, Kais Said and racial politics in Tunisia. Mm -hmm.